Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Romans 1 in the New Testament, and I was going in so many different directions with Romans, I had to focus and kind of come to a a pretty steady stream instead of being all over the place. Romans is a great book, it's a theological treatise, it's doctrine, um, practical living, all these things wrapped up into one. And I had some quotes from Spurgeon, and just about every preacher and Bible teacher has commented on Romans. I'm just going to say there's good stuff in Romans. Uh, So I'm not going to quote all. I'd be having hundreds of quotes, so I kind of scrapped that. But we're going to learn a lot of things, and we're going to learn things in two streams at the same time. First, we're going to learn about big words like justification, sanctification, imputation, righteousness. People have questions. You know, they read it and they kind of, you know, maybe have to look in the dictionary sometimes. But these are not just words for clergy. These these are words for us to all understand. Uh, At the same time, we're going to look at the simplicity and the efficacy of the gospel of salvation. So the cool thing is God doesn't matter what are, we don't have to be geniuses to be saved. We, you know, we could have a base education or no education. God made the message of salvation to get people into heaven as easy as humanly possible. What usually stands in the way is the free will that God gave us. You know, we, even as Christians sometimes, you know, God wants us to go one way and and we kind of, you know, we have free will to to disobey, but that usually doesn't go that well. Uh, But so we're going to cover, we're not going to cover the whole chapter this morning. We're going to cover 17 verses and we're going to look at it in three parts. And what I always do when I start a new book, start off slow, build a foundation. I always do what's called an intro or an overview. So the, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, what's it all about? Who wrote it? like who was buried in Grant's tomb, Grant, all right, who wrote the Paul's letter to the Romans? It was the Apostle Paul. Uh, when was it written? Somewhere around AD 56 to AD 57, near the end of his third missionary journey. To whom was it written? To Christians in Rome. And Rome boasted about a million people back in the day, and for an ancient culture, that was pretty impressive for a city of that time period. So a million residents, you could almost compare, make some comparisons today to a New York City or an LA. Got to give a shout out to East and West Coast. Uh, But Rome, like many big cities, was also an enclave or a bastion of humanistic uh, utopianism, right? Rife with uh, debauchery, success, and even social engineering. You You can still see that today. Rome had impressive buildings and work of, works of art, but it also, sadly, had slavery and it had decadence. Uh, Rome boasted opulence, but it also had squalor, right? And again, we can look at institutions today, we can look at big cities today, and, uh, you know, and we can find a lot of similar things. You can have opportunities in the cities, but right outside the door is crime, homelessness, uh, gambling, vice, and a fast lifestyle. So has, has the humans really changed? No. We can look at Greek culture, Roman culture, Persian culture. Humans are humans. You know, it's the, as the expression goes, it's the same circus with, with different clowns. Uh, so the keys to Romans 
are a few things. Righteousness of God. This is very important. The hopelessness of mankind's sinful condition apart from God. We also know and also we're going to learn about the power of the gospel unto salvation to bridge that righteousness gap. We're also going to look at how to live a victorious and balanced Christian life. So there's really something for everyone here. The Apostle Paul was a very brilliant man of his time, very well educated, but he was willing to give everything up for the simplicity of having a relationship with God and getting other people into heaven as well. So you see him use his intellect, but you, use, you also see him use simplicity. You see him use a Q&A format. And this church has adopted in a few venues a Q&A format, and it, it works very well with a, a learning environment. We're going to look at this systematic presentation of uh, Christian doctrine, but we're also going to look at the book as a practical exhortation. I actually opened up my study Bible, and it had a very pithy quote in there, and it said this, and it said, these are more than facts to be believed that is a life to be lived. And that's, I think, where we get into the trouble, and I got into that trouble as a new believer. I was just trying to gain facts, 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 memorization. You know, I know this, and I know that, and, and that's, a, that's a prideful pursuit. Hopefully with age comes more maturity and you realize that it's really all about living a victorious Christian life and and helping other people come to the Savior that you know. Um, Whenever I start a new book, I put an image on the website with kind of a title or a moniker to that book. And for this one, it's kind of like a, a drawing of the Apostle Paul preaching. But it says why Jesus is the only way. Very important. You hear me almost every Sunday quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and he still so loves the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, doesn't matter who you are, would believe in him, you would not perish, but you would have everlasting life. So that's John 3.16, which everybody can understand, but here we're going to kind of look behind the spiritual curtain and understand why John 3.16 is so important. Why legally? And you go back all the way to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament laws, right? Why technically, why logically that there is no other way? Makes perfect sense. How am I going to teach this book? Hopefully with humility. Uh, Romans, unfortunately, some take the book of Romans and they gather the facts and they memorize things and they use it to debate people, which is debate's fine, but in a way that almost bludgeons them. You know, again, when I was young in my zeal, uh, I probably didn't share the the truth the right way. And uh, I was driving in my car, I was listening to somebody on the radio, probably Chuck Swindoll or somebody. And it was, it was a great sermon for me. There was nobody in the car with me. I'm driving. I'm listening to what he's saying on the radio. And he goes, so you won the debate. He goes, but did you win anyone to Christ? Or did you push them further away? When I heard that sermon, I was convicted. And it's like, it's not about how much information I know. It's not how many facts I can sputter out. It's about bringing somebody closer to their creator. That's what it's all about. Yes, Paul was brilliant. Yes, he was highly educated. But he, he came to the simpleton as a simpleton to bring the simple message of the gospel of salvation. So try to follow this because you've got two streams going on at the same time. We'll check that out. So let's dig in because this is definitely meat of the word and not milk. Prepare to be satiated. (laughs) Verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, 
concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, through whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. So one out of three is the introduction. What do we see here? We see, we see punch. We see a splash of cold water in the face when we understand the original language. The word servant, there were different Greek words for servant. You could have been owed somebody money, and, you, and this is what they did back then. They would work in the person's farms and for so many years pay it back, and they were free to go by law. There was also, unfortunately, in the Roman Empire, they were called douloi or doulas. They were slave slaves. And what the Romans did was, at one point, Rome had half of its citizens enslaved. Horrible. Strictly for economic purposes. What they would do is they would conquer the outer reaches of the Roman Empire. Didn't matter what you looked like. Didn't matter who you are. They would find the youngest, strongest males and enslave them to work for the Roman Empire. Horrible thing. Nobody ever said, I want to be a slave when I grow up. Why? Well, first of all, it's immoral. Okay? God gave us freedom as human beings. He gave us free will to make choices. And that completely nullifies those God-given rights, those inalienable, inalienable rights, so to speak. Also, when you are subjected to another person, everyone on the planet are sinners. So you don't know. You can get somebody that treats you good or not treats you good. So these are the reasons. But Paul uses this very strong word because he puts himself in subjection to the Lord. Paul knew what his life was beforehand. He knew what a grievous sinner was. He knew that he had some questionable practices. And when he got saved, he followed hard after the Lord. He really meant it. So let's just take that comparison of a, a, a human Right, like the Romans who enslaved people, and Paul saying, I am a slave of Christ. Number one, God is not a sinner. So you know if you put yourself in subjection to the Lord, he's going to treat you good. Number two, it's not against your will. The apostle Paul willingly laid down his future to serve the living God. So very powerful, very interesting. And the question is, as Christians, how much of ourselves do we give over to the Lord? Because the Christian culture is doing all kinds of things. Uh, and then you have those Christians that you meet that are really sold out. They really uh, want to serve the Lord. They really understand what it means to be saved. They really understand what Jesus did for them. You just want to serve the Lord. Let's go down this list of orthodoxy, right? Right opinion in this statement. He says separated or appointed to the gospel. He, he was separated. He was the word holy or consecrated means also to be set apart. Apostle Paul says, this is the way people get saved and go to heaven, is the gospel, right? The belief in what Christ did on the cross, going all the way back to Leviticus. So he was separated unto the gospel. Christ was also promised through the Old Testament prophecies. Now remember, when the, the New Testament was being written, the whole Old Testament was codified. So your New Testament writers often referred back to the Old Testament for clarification. 
If you understood the Old Testament, you definitely understand the New Testament. Today, people separate them, but they were never meant to be separated. So he was promised through the, we just covered the uh, Isaiah scroll, 66 chapters in the Old Testament. And we gave all the Isaiah, you know, the Old Testament prophet, how he speaks about the coming Messiah in great detail. He also, uh, Christ came in the line of David. We know that. He also was declared to be the son of God. He wasn't just a man, but he was also fully God and fully man. He was resurrected from the dead and we receive grace. We receive grace from what Christ did on the cross. In verse 7, the apostle Paul says, I'm writing to the really nice people in Rome. Anybody awake today? (laughs) He's speaking about, I'm kidding. He's speaking about the saints. What does he say? Called to be saints. Now, there's a lot of question about that. You know, Jesus established the church some 2,000 years ago, but you give 2,000 years and men get involved and women and they muddy the waters. What does this mean? What does this mean? He says basically uh, that the word saint means to be set apart or consecrated. Now, today, some will tell you, well, you're not a saint until you die, and then the church decides whether you were good enough to be a saint. No, Christ decides whether we are a saint or not. Because I can't see if some of you pass away. I don't, they came to church, they were really nice people, but I can't see your heart. Only God can see your heart. So the Apostle Paul is speaking not to dead people. He's speaking to people who are very much alive. He's calling them saints. They set apart their lives in this big city to serve the living God. Saints, good stuff. Grace and peace. Well, we can only have peace with God and from God when we've received of the grace that he gave us by believing in Christ and what he did on the cross. We're going to talk more about this. Verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So two out of three are warm greetings here. What does he say? Now, understand that... The Apostle Paul might have known a few of the people in the Church of Rome. And you gotta you gotta see his excitement because most likely the church started to coalesce after Pentecost, after the great preaching in all languages at Pentecost. So people went back from Jerusalem to all their different places uh, of habitation, and some of them went back to Rome. And maybe they did some evangelism, they did some witnessing, and lo and behold, in the middle of this debauched city is a church. So Paul's really excited about this. Um, one, of the, one of the few churches he probably didn't found. It, God just did it through his Holy Spirit. So a few things here. He tells them, now this is the apostle telling 
people in the church that he thanked God for them. Christianity was unpopular in the big city and Paul wanted to encourage them. Paul told them he was praying for them, probably for the same reason. It's comforting to know that others are praying for us. I can tell you, <laughs> I don't ask for a lot. Um, it's just my nature. But when I, whenever I go in for surgery, I ask you to pray for me. And I'm going to tell you, they, they've all been pretty much flawless. You know what I'm saying? Um, maybe when I get older, not so much. Who knows? But the, the thought that there are at least a handful of people praying for me is comforting. And we all receive comfort. You know, I, I know people that are not believers and they don't know how to take me. I say, um, can I put so-and-so on our prayer list? Your wife or you? And uh, Yeah, sure. I guess that couldn't hurt. Like, they're like, wow, you would do that? Yeah, let's, let's pray for you. So prayer is a great thing. Um, it, it encourages us. It makes us feel loved, right? Paul's letting them know that he was working on visiting them. Now, that's also, you see this um, increase in closeness. You know, it's, it's a blessing when somebody physically visits you in your trials, right? It's a, it's a comforting feeling when somebody comes to you, when you're uh, struggling and in difficulty. He also uh, said that he would be just as encouraged if he gets to be with them. Now that's, see, here's the issue. And, you know, Jesus Christ uh, preached against this. This idea that the clergy is so far and so high above the average Christian, it was never meant to be like that. It wasn't like that in the Acts church. It wasn't like that when Jesus established the church. So, I mean, it was, it was exciting that this apostle Paul was coming to visit them. But Paul is saying to them, he knows his title as an apostle. He says, when I get to see you, and I'm, I'm going to take a little latitude with, and I get to hear your stories, and I get to see your faces, and I get to greet you, and I get to break bread with you, boy, I'm going to be just as encouraged by you as you're encouraged by me. You see what I'm saying? And this is, this is Christian warmth. I will say this, it's an aberration, right? It's an aberration. It's not normal in Christianity when people are cold, unfriendly, or clicky. And, I, you know, I go there as a pastor. You guys know me. Um, and that's sad to see that because that's not normal. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit and the love of Christ, we naturally become warmer people. Or we should. You know, we got, we're walking with the Lord, right? The Apostle Paul says, I am a debtor. And some have, have wrestled with this, and I just look at it like this. He says he's a slave of Christ. He's a debtor to humanity. And what he's saying is, God's, he, he, Paul, God filled him with the Holy Spirit. Uh, he had all this knowledge, and he just felt that it was his duty for the rest of his life to share salvation with people. So that's, that's why I look at that. He's, an, he's a debtor. He's, he needs to do this. And, you know, and, and don't, get, don't get me wrong. You, sometimes people serve with the wrong heart. I've got to cover all the bases. You know, they're like, oh, I'm serving again. That's really not the attitude we're supposed to have. If you do that here, don't come in and serve. Relax. You know, take the day off. So the Apostle Paul, to him, as you start to read his letters, it's a joy what he did. He loved meeting people. He loved sharing the gospel with people. This is just who he was, right? You know, I, I heard some rumors about 
eat Christians not sharing. Listen, we live in a culture now where everything is offensive. Everybody's triggered by everything, especially if you go to college. It's just weird what's going on in our culture. This is the land of debate and, and different ideas and trying to convince each other, and things are changing, and I, not for the good. So I was reading some articles about Christianity and how Christians, they don't share their faith as much. And I actually went to Barna, and I, it was like an eight-page treatise on this, all the polls. They surveyed well over 2,000 people, um, the cities, the Midwest, East Coast, West Coast. And they surveyed all these Christians, and they kind of broke it down into demographics, who's sharing the gospel and who's not. <laughs> and this is what they found. They found, because again, sometimes Christians are a little, listen, we're not sharing our religion, folks. I don't expect you to go out there and tell somebody, let me tell you about Calvary Chapel. People get saved in Calvary Chapel. Don't tell them about Calvary Chapel. Tell them about Jesus. You want to invite them to the church? That's awesome. Jesus is the one who saves us, not man, not religion, not clergy. It's Christ. It's pure. Right? It's pure. So I'm reading this poll, and it says that those in their uh, late 60s and older, saints that are 70s and 80s, are bold. They're sharing their faith. And it's saying that, believe it or not, you know, and again, millennials get a, a bad rap, and I don't think it's right. Millennial Christians are sharing their faith. But my group is punking out, <laughs> you know, anywhere from late 30s all the way to like late 50s. I'm not there yet. Uh, but those two groups are they're punking out when it comes to sharing the gospel. And it's listen, this isn't a force thing. This isn't you go to door to door and you write stuff on a card. That's that's for men. That's for religion. It's just going out there and trying to build bridges and loving people and just sharing the way of salvation with them. So it's very interesting. It was a very interesting poll. You could easily find it. It was recently done. But we're not sharing religion. We're sharing Christ, right? And we've got to get our, our, our mindset uh, proper when it comes to that. Uh, and we see a major theme in Romans is sacrifice, right? The Apostle Paul, he sacrificed. When we're Christians, there's going to be times we sacrifice our time. We're going to sacrifice a little part of us to pour into somebody. It's, a, it's, a, it's an inter, interactive thing. Christianity is supposed to be warm. You know what I'm saying? So I know I'm, I'm starting off slow in this book, but we're, we're building a foundation here. You know, we're, putting the, we're putting, pouring the footings. I used to do that and building some block here. And then the house is going to go up quickly. So, you know, this is where we're at. So last two verses for this morning. Uh, he also speaks about uh, the Greeks and the barbarians. I didn't want to miss that. But, you know, Greco-Roman culture was very interesting how they divided themselves. But the, the Greeks were into philosophy. They were into education. And a lot of times they looked at everybody else as the barbarians. But barbarians were also a group of people that were kind of on the borders of the Roman Empire. And I think what Paul was saying was, I'm sharing to everybody. I'm sharing to this group. I'm sharing with that group. There is nobody outside the kingdom. There is nobody outside the possibility of salvation. And we best not forget that. Verse 16. Last two for this morning. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God, the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written. And here he quotes the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. So let's look at this. Three is God's imputed righteousness via the gospel of salvation. 
We're going to talk a lot about God's righteousness and the fact that man is not righteous. Some walk through this world and they're very deceived. They think that they're just going to get to heaven because they didn't kill somebody. That's not the standard in the Old Testament or the New Testament. There's a righteousness that God has. There's a perfection that we don't have. But God did something to try to bridge that righteousness gap so that we, it could be imputed to us. Imputed is like a, an accounting term. It means to, to credit someone. Now, sometimes we look and, and listen, it's technical stuff for those of you that are Bibles a little advanced. Um, it's not, it, listen, we, we had our sins forgiven. And we trust in Christ and what he did at the cross. Well, so that's a negative action. The sins were forgiven. And, and I don't say uh, an immoral judgment. It's a negative action, um, but it's, it's a good thing. But we also had Christ's righteousness imputed to us. That's a positive action. So you see a lot of different things. The, the nuts and bolts that Christ dying on the cross, dying for our sins, people are like, well, what is all that about? Now, here's the other thing. He said, I'm not ashamed because there was a, a Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. And the Greeks said, well, these are our gods. This is our God of love. And the Romans were like, well, this is our God of love. Well, this is our God of war. Well, this is our God of war. They had a pantheon of gods that were a reflection of who they were. So if you look at the pantheon, you can see that there was uh, occupational gods. The god of the sea, if you're a fisherman. The god of the harvest, if you're a farmer. They just made this stuff up over the many years. Then there was gods of characteristics. The god of love, the god of strength, the god of power, the god of war. And the Greeks and the Romans kind of, I don't know, compared notes and gave them different names. and said, yeah, yeah, we got the same thing. Paul comes in, who's your God? Well, he was a Jewish carpenter that uh, died on a tree and hung there and bled to death on a Roman cross. Now you know why he's saying, he's saying, I'm not ashamed. Why is he not ashamed? Leviticus 17, Old Testament, he had to shed his blood, right? Deuteronomy, I forget where it is. Um, Cursed is the, is the person who hangs on a tree. To take the curse of, of, of sinful human flesh, he had to hang on the tree. So as you go through step by step by step in the Old Testament, by being crucified, Christ fulfilled all of those requirements. Right there in the Old Testament, all you have to do is read it. So Paul's like, I'm not ashamed. You can make fun of me all you want. You're the one who's deceived. You don't understand. You see? And I'll, I'll tell you this. As a young police officer, when I started reading the Bible... I gotta, I, I'm just going to admit, full transparency, I was a little, I, don't say, I wouldn't say ashamed. You know, you wanted to be with the pack, it's that kind of job, and I was conflicted inside. I really wanted God, but then when I went to work, I wanted to fit in. Eventually, I just, you know, said, well, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. Now I got them, the guys are calling me, and can you do my wedding? <laughs> can you, my so-and-so passed away, can you do the funeral? I mean, they, not only have they accepted it, but they embrace it. And I would say this, if you're struggling in your occupation or your peer group, don't let them wear you down, wear them down. Now, I don't say that to be obnoxious. I say that just stick with it. After a few years go by, they'll realize, oh, it's not a fad. This this Bob is serious, you know. Uh, Jane is serious, you know what I'm saying? And they'll look at you and maybe they'll start asking questions. Maybe they'll ask you to pray for them. Stranger things have happened. (laughs) So so this is what's going on here. He's not ashamed. you know, I would also point to the persecuted church. And I got to tell you, before I was a Christian, I don't think I even cared what went on overseas. I was just so America focused. 
when I became a Christian, I started realizing there's a whole world outside of our shores. And now I'm really into the plight of the persecuted church. We have great freedoms in this country. We have brothers and sisters who we'll see in eternity who are suffering just because they're Christians. You know, certain uh, governments are trying to eradicate them. Um, I'll just give you a few statistics. According to Open Doors that chronicles Christian persecution, so far this year in Nigeria, it's a region in Africa, there's well over 200 Christians that have been killed for their faith. They've been martyred. 2015 was the worst year. Close to 4,000 Christians were killed in Nigeria. Nigeria is actually largely a Christian uh, country. Uh, 11 Christians are killed every single day in 50 countries on the Open Doors World Watch list. Every single day, every two hours, basically, maybe a little bit more, a Christian dies. Every two hours, one Christian is martyred for their faith in only 50 countries. There's a lot more countries in the world than 50, but this is on the watch list. And you know what? I don't know if the media just is indifferent or Christians are martyred so often that they just, you know, everybody accepts it, right? The most persecuted uh, group in the world for the, just for being Christian. So when I look at that, I have to say, in America, I'll take some teasing. I'll take some isolation because it's nothing compared to what my brothers and sisters are dealing with overseas. Amen? Just a little perspective check. So verse 17, he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I want to read something else to you on the heels of that. Is 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21. And I'm going to get into the, I'm going to close with the imputation and all those big words and what that means and what is he saying, righteousness. Also written by the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, 20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, figuratively, right? As Christians, you know, we, what do we do? When we see people who don't know God at all, we're, we're ambassadors. We come from his kingdom and we give them the good news and tell, tell them about our king and about our ways and, and our country and how that country is eventually going to dominate the world. I mean, figuratively, but this is the pitch, picturesque language the Apostle Paul used. He goes, so we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were, watch these words, pleading, God pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. When you read the parable of the prodigal son, Middle Eastern men did not indignify themselves by running with their robes on. And a lot of them still don't. And in the story, Jesus is likening the father to God. And he, he girds up his loins. He sees his, sees his wayward son on, on the horizon. And he girds up his loins and he runs after him. And he hugs him and he kisses him. And that's a great... I, I, just the stuff that's in the Bible, when you start to meditate on it, it just does stuff to you. But he, Paul's saying... We, we want people to be saved, you know, as if God was pleading through us. We implore you. Does God plead emotionally to see us saved? Yes, he does. And when we reflect his heart, we're doing it right. You know, I, I, and I've seen the debates and the nastiness, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, get this off of YouTube. It's not reality. It's not right. I never saw Jesus beat somebody up who was a sinner. He always tried to build bridges with them. 
21. For he made him, for the father made him the son who knew no sin. In other words, he had no active familiarity with sin. Christ never sinned. Who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is wild stuff. There was an identity switch when Christ went to the cross. When you trust, whatever point in your life, it could be this morning, you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, he already paid the penalty for your sins. Right? You now get his identity of his perfection because he destroyed your sins at the cross. And then the big words come in. Um, Well, before we get to that, his righteousness, a right standing with God, someone who's moral, morally right, who's perfect. We're not righteous. God is. But we need it to be imputed to us. We need it to be credited to us. And that's the how we do it is by trusting in his sacrifice on the cross. In, in, in a sense, we're identity thieves, you know what I'm saying? But in a good way. We took his, when God sees us and we're, we're covered under Christ, he sees sinlessness. That's the only way we can get into heaven, folks. Old Testament, New Testament, it's all there. He says from faith to faith, from beginning to end, from, you know. So the terms justification. Justification means to declare righteousness. Imputation means to credit righteousness. So the imputation, we we receive that righteousness by trusting in his sacrifice. But God also is justifies us. He declares us righteous. Now, we use words in our vernacular and, you know, words, even in the dictionaries, every few years they change the words and add some meanings because kind of like English is almost like a living language. It, it evolves over time. They even use like some slang is now in the dictionary. Um, we think of justification as, and it's, it's close, you do something wrong, you argue about what you did. See, this is why I have to bring the culture to the Bible and help you understand. Uh, I did something wrong, and somebody asked me what I did. Instead of coming clean, I justify what I did. That's not the justification here. God declares us righteous when we're under the blood of Christ. We're free from guilt or sin. Faith is the vehicle for all these good things to happen. Faith is not a work because works don't save. We can't work our way to heaven. All the religious machinations never get you to heaven. It has to be through Christ. You have to believe right? He says, the just shall live by faith. This happened in Habakkuk 2.4. It's repeated in the New Testament through the apostle Paul. The person is just because they walk by faith in God. Even in the Old Testament, right? It said, how was Abraham? And we're going to talk about this. How was Abraham righteous? It was imputed to him because he had faith in God. Abraham believed that God eventually was going to send the Messiah. Abraham, Moses, it was imputed to them. Moses killed a man. He wasn't righteous. But it was imputed to him because of his, his faith in God and his repentance and all the things. And he walked with God. And that was just a, a bad memory in the past. But Moses changed. See what I'm saying? So if you're here this morning and you might have thought, I don't know, I'm going to come to this church. I passed by it a few times. Uh, check it out. Check out some churches in the area. And you think that you're not good enough to get to heaven or you're not good enough to be a saint or whatever you do, you'll never know until you die because God is capricious. None of those things are true. I'm here to tell you this morning that I can give you the simple explanation. I could give you the nuts and bolts. Some people like the nuts and bolts. Some people like the simple. Some people like both. doesn't matter. 
It's the same thing, okay? Um, Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic monk. He read this one verse. It kept him up at night. He wrestled with it and wrestled with it. He said, but I'm part of a system that tells people they have to do these things. But here I'm reading the just. I'm just if I live by faith, if I walk with my God. He tried to get his organization to change. They wouldn't. Uh, He eventually, that one verse sparked through him the Reformation. Reform or I'm out of here. And a lot of people did that. Sparked the Reformation. One verse. Kept the man up at night. And folks, we'll go through the scripture and if we're doing it right and we're really paying attention, there's some things that might spark us as well to change, to get closer to God. That's the power of God. The just shall live by faith. They'll be justified. They'll be declared righteous, imputed righteous on account of their faith in what Christ did on the cross. In closing, this is educational. This is doctrinal. This is explanatory. As we go through this letter, I don't think the Apostle Paul could have envisioned that that the Lord, you know, a lot of people back then thought, you know, the Roman Empire was so decadent, it might have been imminent that the Lord might return. I don't think he could have ever envisioned what he wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit would affect billions of people. This is powerful, and we only covered 17 verses. You don't need to know what I told you to be saved, by the way. There's not going to be a test at the end. Righteousness, A, B, C, pick one. That's not what gets you into heaven. It's good stuff. It's, it's challenging me as a teacher. But in order to be saved, you must believe and you must trust. Now, when I say must, it doesn't mean anybody can force you to do that. Right? Romans ten seventeen. faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. If you've come into this room and admittedly you don't have a relationship with God, there will be things that you read that will nag you in a good way, like Martin Luther. It will, it will hopefully spark you to really consider your life and where you're going when you die. And these aren't for bad reasons. These are for good reasons, right? Somebody's uh, driving off a cliff. You could step in front of their car, make them swerve, and crash into a guide rail, and you ruined my car. Yeah, but did you see the, the cliff I saved you from? This is what we're doing. There is a hell. There is a wide road that Jesus says, and many follow it. They're clueless. And there's also a narrow path for those that will get to eternal life. So you have to believe, not in yourself, not in religion, not in celebrities, not in what you see on TV. have to believe that Jesus died for you individually, that he loves you that much. Trust. Trust crosses the chasm, the gulf of disbelief. And on the other side, you will find salvation. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have Children's Church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. 
You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.